This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, former University of North Carolina basketball coach Roy Williams. The legend guided the Tar Heels to three national championships, retiring after 18 years at the helm in Chapel Hill, plus 15 successful years at the University of Kansas before that. But his coaching career started at UNC as an assistant under Dean Smith. Williams discusses how it all began. So she said, okay, Coach Smith offered you 2700 for the year. And I said, yep, that's about it. Plus, we dive into some of the biggest challenges of his career. There were some things said in both cases that uh, hurt me deeply, still do. His difficult upbringing. You said your dad was a good man, <laughs> but alcohol changed yeah. him. Uh, how so? And his relationship with the one and only Michael Jordan. So I said, excuse me, I thought you told me you wanted to be the best. You have no chance, no chance. You'll hear two other voices chime in throughout the podcast. William's two kids, Scott and Kim. It's interesting to hear their perspective on growing up with a coaching father. What's the deal with him and pizza? I have no earthly idea. And the only times he's ever eaten pizza, he will tell you, is when he went into a prospect's home. If mom is handing him a plate of pizza, he's going to eat that plate of pizza. But we begin with Williams talking about retirement. He announced his decision on April Fool's Day 2021. And unfortunately for Tar Heels fans, it wasn't a joke. Going back a number of years, why did Coach Smith tell you not to retire as early as he did? You know, I think he missed it desperately the first two or three years and felt like that uh, uh, he could still do it. And he loved the game so much. And But he got tired of the media. He got tired of the recruiting. He got tired of the alumni meetings. He let the feelings that he had for everything on the outside uh, dominate his decision. And I think that's what it was, because he, after he was out, after he was retired, I think he felt like that uh, he should have put up with the other stuff just to stay coaching a little longer. And, you know, so he said 66, and I says, I'm not setting a timetable, but so when I got past 66, I felt like I'd uh, delivered on my promise to him. I, I understand you were watching a women's soccer game when it hit you. Mm. Uh, how are you handling retirement now? Oh, it's, uh, it has its good moments. <laughs> I didn't have to go to media day. That was the best moment so far. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I went to, Wanda and I went to a women's soccer game. All of a sudden I realized I was no longer uh, the basketball coach. And uh, it was an unusual feeling. And so that was a, uh, the first little hurdle to get by. The second little hurdle was the uh, night before uh, practice started. and. Uh, it just hit me pretty hard that night. That, really? Uh, first time in 48 years, I'm not gonna walk out on that court with a whistle. I wanted to be a coach starting in the ninth grade. I don't think I'll have nearly that kind of depth of uh, sadness on the first game day. And I'm sure I'll have some kind of feeling, but nothing like not being a coach any longer. You don't think he was ready to retire? Um, I, I think he probably would have enjoyed continuing to coach because I, I think there, I think there's relatively few things in his life that gave him as much joy. But at the same time, I mean, he's, he's no spring chicken and his body's starting to fall apart on him and like, he deserves it. Relax a little bit. I don't think he's ever been scared of making a decision and, and uh, never been scared of the repercussions. If it felt right and he thought it was the right thing to do, he did it. I haven't had second thoughts, but you still have... Uh, ideas that come through and you say wonder, but 
I really felt that it was the right time. And uh, I did not know if I would ever be retired. It wasn't, I didn't have a plan because I was, uh, if, if we had won a big tournament, I croaked the next day, it would have been okay. I think that he is um, satisfied in his decision and so I'm happy for him for that. There was a lot of sadness also, just that um, that wasn't going to be what he did anymore, knowing how much he loved it and everything. Even just telling us about it and stuff, he um, got emotional talking about it. And I just remember being like, wait, is he for real? <laughs> um, and then he just kind of kept talking and it was like, oh, like he, he really is, like this is really it. He calls and he says, look, I gotta talk to you about something. Uh, I've given this a lot of thought. I, I just don't think I'm the right person for the job anymore. I'm quiet. He's crying on the phone. I'm still quiet. He finally stops talking. And I say, hey, that, that, that's great. But is the Nike and Coca-Cola contract still going to extend past your actual coaching years? And he, and he pauses for a second. He's like, I just told you I'm retiring and that's where you go? And I was like, yes, you don't understand how great it is. I don't have to buy shoes for my kids. <laughs> and my refrigerator is always stocked with Powerade. And he hung up on me shortly thereafter. He was like, I guess you're not having a problem with this. And I said, no, congrats. Why, if not for the pandemic, do you think you would have ended up coaching longer? It was just a hard year. The pandemic had a factor in it, there's no question. I don't think I became as close to our players uh, you know, my biggest thing is next to last year of coaching, I think I made a couple of mistakes in two big games that I think really hurt our team and I never wanted to do that. And I had a difficult time handling that over the summer. I never had that feeling that I really cost us a game until two years ago. And I made some mistakes, God almighty, I made more mistakes than anybody's ever coached. And then last year, 2021, uh, we didn't have fall conditioning. We didn't have the 12 minute run, the first day of classes where I bring the guys to my house and we sit down and talk about our dreams and goals. We didn't have the pickup games with all our former players who are pros coming back and playing pickup game with our guys. We didn't have all those things of team building. All of those things contributed, I think, uh, to my feeling of not doing as good a job as I'd done in the past. Why do you feel it's just generally difficult to communicate with players in the way that was able to happen in earlier days? The reason in my mind is the world in athletics and sports and particularly in college basketball has changed dramatically over the years. Uh, it's college basketball, even at the University of North Carolina, for most of those great players is just a little bus stop on the way to the NBA. That's all they think about. And I think that the parents may think about it even more than the players do. And so I want guys to come to North Carolina who have a desperate, a desperate desire to win a national championship. And oh yeah, I have the same kind of desire to be an NBA player. It's harder to get both of those now. Why do you think that changed? Money, fame and fortune, NBA. It's a, it's a, a big monster. I, I, I love watching our guys play in the NBA and I'm thrilled when when the, on draft night, when those guys, some of my favorite moments have been when I've heard my kids' names on draft night. What, what do you think of players now being able to profit off their name and likeness? 
Oh boy, that's, uh, this, this interview's not gonna last long enough to, uh, to get all my thoughts. I, I sit on the fence a little bit, long time ago. Peyton Manny is one of my heroes, and Peyton wrote me the nicest note. I've met him a couple of times, and after my retirement, handwritten note, which I was thrilled to get. But uh, Peyton, one year at Tennessee, had his name on the back of the football jersey the first game, and they sold like 50,000, and Peyton didn't get one cent. Now that's not right, okay? Uh, that just, that's just not right, and I've always thought that. But the other side of it is that the NCAA and the universities and the athletic directors and the coaches have all made life so much better for a student athlete now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And saying all this, why should someone be prohibited from making money if they can do it, and yet, boy, it, I don't know how it's gonna work out in the locker room if you're making a heck of a lot of money and I'm not making any. We would autograph 1,200 basketballs every year and we'd sell them. And then we'd give them to charities around town. Uh, over $2 million in my 18 years. And it's, now it's hard to say, okay, come on and sign these things when they may be able to go, go to a store and sign and get $10 per autograph. You know, so there's some things that are gonna be lost, but the team building is the, the biggest to me. But some kids, you know, they're gonna like having money in their pocket, but they're still gonna try to beat you up on game night. And, and that's, the, that's what I would hang my hat on of being able to still coach. I had name, image, and likeness had nothing to do with my decision to retire. Closest you ever came to coaching in the NBA? Well, I've been very lucky. And I think it's 14 or 15 different teams that either called and asked me to come and talk to them about being their head coach. And some of those even just flat out offered me the job. But there was only one time that, uh, that I thought about because I thought recruiting was getting out of hand on the negative side. And I went home and told Wanda, I says, if I want to keep coaching, I may have to go to high school again, or I may have to go to the NBA because I'm not enjoying where recruiting is going. And then all of a sudden, Nick Collison, Drew Gooden, and Kirk Heinrich. That was the class that we brought in at Kansas in 99, I guess. And they restored my belief that you can find kids who really do want to play college basketball and want to get a degree and, and love playing as a team. And uh, I was able to make it for another 21 years, 22 years, something like that. Take me through the frenzy around when you were considering making the jump from Kansas to UNC the first go around and ultimately decided to stay? Wow. Uh, you said in your book, it was the, the toughest time that I ever had. It far surpassed whatever pain, anger, and sorrow that I'd endured as a kid. Yeah. Uh, well, I believe that still. <laughs> that was the toughest time because North Carolina was my school. It was not my dream job because I never, people don't believe this, but it's true. I never dreamed about being a North Carolina basketball coach. When I was assistant here, I was gonna be happy to be Coach Smith's assistant for 30 more years. And then all of a sudden, you know, people started asking me about it. And then all of a sudden I ended up being a coach at Kansas and I loved Kansas. And so North Carolina was home. Our children, our families, it was home. Kansas is really freaking good, <laughs> okay. And so I loved that place. And I was torn because it wasn't, there was no good answer, but there was no great answer either. For several nights, uh, I didn't sleep. Uh, uh, I cared and I can't even say cared, I loved 
uh, both schools. But I had promised uh, Nick Collison uh, that uh, one of the schools we were recruiting against had said, if you go to Kansas, Roy Williams is not going to be there. He'll be at North Carolina. And so the family asked me, and I said, I'll be here as long as you're here. And I know some people think it's sort of silly or corny or anything, but I never could answer that question of what to say to Nick. And uh, I loved what was going on at Kansas. I loved everything about it. And uh, it, was, it was hard. Describe that feeling, though, when you announced it to the football stadium. Well, it's, it was sort of crazy because, you know, there was so much attention. I just wanted to let me get by myself to do some thinking. And there was every time I turned around, there was a camera there or something. And I said, come on, guys, can I just go have a few moments of peace? Mm -hmm. And I did shame them because they all got this sad look on their face and they left me alone. But uh, so that day, uh, when I made the decision, it was the most emotional I'd ever felt in my life about what words am I going to say? But uh, we were talking earlier about I haven't had an affinity for Coca-Cola classics, and I think <laughs> I'd had about 200 ounces that day. I'm not exaggerating. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm still not knowing. So I just said, I'm staying. You know, and that was about... The, if only if you were grading it on how eloquent it was, it was about as low as you could be. But it was, uh, uh, at that time, it was the perfect decision. What was interesting is when that happened, you said folks at UNC kind of, some folks kind of wiped you off as, as coach. Long-time relationships kind of ceased to exist, mm -hmm. obviously since repaired. But then the same thing happened kind of in a different way when you left Kansas, how, how strange was that dynamic for you on both fronts? It was uh, strange and uh, it was hard to handle because from when I stayed at Kansas, a lot of very good friends were really disappointed in me or upset or mad. And then when I did come back three years later, it was the same thing at Kansas and that was really hard. I tried to learn from it and tried to talk to my teams and my children. What you want in life is you want people that are with you regardless. And you don't have very many of those. You have other people who are with you if you do what they want you to do. And, but you, no matter how small it may be, you want to have some people who are really with you. I call it my foxhole buddies that stuck with me the whole time. But there were some uh, sad moments. There were some uh, very difficult moments on both sides. Uh, some people said some things and uh, uh, terminated our friendship uh, uh, that was um, that was just very hard and then when I came back you know there were some things said in both cases that uh, hurt me deeply still do uh, but uh, uh, still I had that uh, that group the foxhole buddies that uh, took care of me speaking of people that are in your corner for, for life uh, your mom yeah um, what do you think you most learned from her? Oh gosh, it would take me a long time to say everything. She was a very intelligent but uneducated uh, lady. She quit school in the 10th grade. My dad quit in the sixth grade and my mom had 10 brothers and sisters. My dad had 13. So when we had family reunions, we had 5,000 cousins <laughs> around. And I was the first of our generation to ever go to college. And education was not really ever spoken of in my home. Uh, when my report card came in, my mom would always see it and, and I knew it pleased her 
that I had really good grades. And the biggest thing I get from my mom is that uh, she had confidence and trust of me doing the right thing. One time she even said, you just make sure you do the right thing. And I said, Mom, how am I going to know what's the right thing? And she said, you'll know. What did she teach you about work ethic? Oh, she just always told me to do my best. And she said, I'm not asking you to do the best you can do. I'm saying do the best. And so she wanted me to, it was her way of saying, I guess, that she wanted me to be competitive. And you saw it in her, though, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean when she was 65 years old and quit, uh, retired, seven months later she got cancer, nine months later she was dead. But when she retired at 65, the last week she worked, she worked 48 hours. I mean, so nobody worked harder than my mom did, and she did it to provide for me. That was it. She worked for Vanderbilt Shirt Factory for 25 years, but then she would iron for people on the side. Yeah. Uh, what about that made you kind of embarrassed to answer the door? You know, it just embarrassed me because my mom is having to iron other people's clothes, make enough money to feed me. So there are a lot of times that I would leave I would go up the hill across the street to the Biltmore Elementary School and try to play basketball or something just to get out of there on Sunday nights. Why'd she start giving you a dime? I'm in the seventh grade. We would always stay on the playground and play about every afternoon if the weather was okay. And then right across the street, there was, in those days you called them filling stations. When we finished playing, everybody stops at Ed's and get a Coke. And she said, what? What do you do? And I said, Mom, I just drink some water. And uh, so she didn't like that. And the next day, there was a dime uh, sitting on the kitchen table. Because at that time, that's what coats cost. <laughs> and uh, so she left me a dime on the kitchen table every morning. It was something that meant a great deal to me. What about it touches you? so much? Just that uh, she didn't want me to be any different from everybody else. She was the most important person in his life for basically until he met my mom, I would say. I mean, so he gives her credit for the man that he is, and she was just awesome. I think you and I talked about it the other day, but his selflessness, like, he got that from Mimi. When I brought up her, her name, like, it, uh, clearly like touches both of you. What is it about her that comes to mind? For me, a little bit. Like I, I wish like Katie and my boys had gotten to know her. So that's probably, that's probably what, what it comes from me. Tell about the day your family home was foreclosed on. You're in some tough spots. My mom and dad had, had bought the house, the only house they'd ever owned. We'd always rented. And my mom and dad were having problems and they'd split and get back together and split and get back together. So during those times, uh, uh, we would uh, uh, stay where, we, where she could find a place for us to stay. One uh, of my aunts and her husband were managing a hotel, so we lived in a hotel. My mother would, had a job, and then she would clean rooms at night to help pay for the uh, room. My dad calls and says, why don't you guys come and take the house and I'll move out. And uh, so we did. And we were there about three weeks and knock on the door and there's two guys in suits, black dark suits, white shirts, and real thin little tie. That's the reason to this day I still won't wear one of those really thin little ties. <laughs> I won't wear those. And they asked if my mother or father were there and I said, yes, just a minute. And I went and got my mom and she came 
and they gave us 10 days to get out of the house because while we had been gone, Dad had not made any of the house payments. It was tougher on, I mean, it was tough on me because I thought this is our home, uh, but it was really tough on my mom. Take me through the moment where you had just gotten back from the golf course and walk in after getting your mom a uh, house and see her for the first time. Yeah, that was, that was a neat thing. Uh, so in 1984, because uh, my mom uh, was still living in a rented house that we'd lived in as I was growing up, and I decided to build her a house. So we did, and uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Green, who later became one of my assistants, we made three trips and took all of my mom's furniture and everything out of the little house and put it in the new house. And so I asked my sister, I said, uh, what time are you going to bring mom over? Because she had never been to the house. And she knew it was going on, and we talked about it and everything. And she told me what she wanted, but she didn't want to go there until it was uh, finished. And so she said, well, I'm 2 or 3 o'clock, what's good for you? And I said, oh, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to go play golf. And she said, you don't want to be there when mom walks in? I said, no. I said, why do I want to see her cry? And uh, so I did. I said, uh, tell her I'll be there 6.30 or 7. So I remember walking in the house. and. Uh, uh, opened a door and walked in and she was standing at the stove stirring the gravy. My favorite meal was fried chicken, biscuits and gravy. And uh, so I just went up behind her and hugged her a little bit and then went on back into the bedroom and washed my hands and everything like that. And then we came back and ate. The folded $100 bill mm -hmm. that you've kept, uh, why? It helped me a great deal. And this is corny, but I'm corny, Jesus Christ. Uh, so my mom is, uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma. I called her and she, she told me they were going to do a procedure. So uh, I said, I think I might just fly back and be there. She said, don't do that. She always, she kept saying, you keep doing your job. It shouldn't take but about 20 minutes is all it's going to take. She said, but the only thing that makes me mad is why I had to be in here by two o'clock today and they're not going to do it until two o'clock tomorrow. I could have gone to bingo tonight. And that was the thrill for me. I just started laughing. I said, okay, you're okay. And it was the godsend later on because my whole thing when she got it, I just didn't want her to suffer. And so uh, they put the wire in through her throat and it uh, punctures the uh, pericardium. And she had cardiac arrest on the table and died. And uh, so for me, the, the last thing my mom and I talked about was the fact that they messed her up and wouldn't let her go to bingo the night before. So those were good feelings. And so I go back home and get Wanda and the kids. And so we go to Asheville and we pull up in front of the house that we had built for her. And this is 1992. So she had been able to live there for eight years. And her friend Leonard, who would take her to play bingo, and he was really a nice guy, an older retired guy, and like my mom. And uh, he walks up and he said, your mama gave me this to keep until she got out of the hospital. And it was two $100 bills because she had won the $200 at the bingo the last time they had gone. And so I gave my sister uh, one of the $100 bills and I kept the other one. And uh, it's still in my back pocket in my wallet right now. And it's never left. You said your dad was a good man, mm -hmm. but alcohol changed yeah. him. Uh, how so? You know, he uh, was married five times, 
My mom was his first. He was an alcoholic. And when he was drinking, it was more anger. And uh, when he was not drinking, he was a fun guy. He could say some of the funniest things. And, uh, uh, and I think he was a tough guy. It was a very physical world as far as he was concerned. And uh, he had a lot of pride. And uh, there were a lot of bouts. Uh, there was a lot of physical things that went on between the two of them. An argument would escalate into some physical things, and uh, uh, the last time that he ever came into uh, our house, it was a confrontation, and uh, I told him, don't ever step in my house again. I was 14, 13 or 14 years old, and the strange thing is, even later on when, uh, when I'm married and have children, is my dad never stepped foot in any home I ever owned the rest of my life. And I think that was the reason why. And that back then was be because a warrant had been served for his arrest for back child support. I don't know payments. that he was ever served a warrant, but he was, I don't think that, I, I know that he was threatened with, if you don't start paying uh, uh, child support. But uh, finally my mom just gave up and we did our own thing. But he was a, he was a, a good hearted man alcohol changed him. When he was not drinking, he was fantastic. And it's just that uh, there weren't many of those times. When you were in it back then, how would you and your sister Frances try and break it up? You know, just try to get them to stop, get it mediated, and then uh, just do what you could do. Yeah, how would you cope with it at the time? Anger myself. I would uh, yell and scream and uh, uh, try to get it stopped, and uh, uh, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't working. And my mom did the right thing, and then we just moved on. You ever looking back now wonder how those experiences impacted you later on? First thing is I really realized every time I would see a really nice home situation that made me want to make sure that I had that. It made me appreciate. Uh, the good family moments. And my wife, Wanda, and her family were just a completely different role model for what I wanted it to be for me later on. Did it ever scare you that given those were your experiences in your formative years that, you know, between your mom and dad splitting up, getting back together, the abuse that that, that would end up what your life w would be later no, on? because I've, I'm probably, this is a comical thing, I'm probably the only person that's ever graduated from University of North Carolina. I stayed here five years and got a master's degree, and I never drank a beer. I don't, I don't drink, so. I, you think because of that? Oh yeah, oh, there's no question. I was afraid of what it did to my dad might do to me. I would just say that he probably learned how not to be a dad from him. Um, I mean, I just think that that was his biggest thing is that he just didn't want to be a dad and a husband like Papa Williams was. What did your dad uh, say to you at your mom's visitation? Oh, it was, uh, it was, it was a funny thing because we would have contact. I would call him Christmas Day and then maybe call him once a, a year other than that, try to go see him once a year, uh, but uh, that was it. And so when mom passes, we have a visitation. It's a small little uh, uh, funeral home area. He said, I only came for one reason. He said, I've only regretted one thing in my entire life. And uh, that's the way I treated your mom. And I just wanted you to know that. And then 
he cussed and turned around and walked out the door. <laughs> and that was it. And, uh, but I appreciated that. I really did. I, that, that meant something to me. Why was it important to you to eulogize him? One of my cousins said, your dad asked me if I thought that you would speak at his funeral like you did at your mom's. And that was my dad's way of asking me to do it because he would never ask me to do it. He had had, he would have had too much pride to do that. The Biltmore Gym, <laughs> uh, the policeman that caught you and what happens from there? Well, it was a funny thing because it started on one of those Sunday nights when my mom had some uh, clothes that she was ironing and it just, I just wanted to get out of there. And so I went to Biltmore Gym and I found out for sure on the outside, you could climb up to the second floor and you could get in through one of the windows that were not locked. I never would turn the lights on. They had the red exit signs on both ends and that was enough light for me and so I'd play. And so I'm in there one time and a policeman came in and, but it was good because he caught me when I was sweeping the floor and he thought I was just trying to take care of it. I was trying to erase my tracks is what I was doing. And uh, so then he caught me again later. And uh, that's when it took me to the principal's, uh, principal's home, put me in the back of the car. You, you think you're... Oh, I thought I was going to jail. I was yeah. scared to death. <laughs> and he takes me to the principal's house and uh, they scold me a little bit. And then they hand me a key and said, don't go in that way, but don't bring anybody else. If you bring anybody else in, you're responsible for them too. So for over a year, I had a key to the gym, but I never took anybody else in with me. It would just be by myself. Oh, what about your high school coach Baldwin? made you feel like you could accomplish things that even your family didn't think you could do? My freshman year at Robertson, I played on the JV team, it was for ninth and 10th graders, but I had some of my close friends were in the junior class. And they came home and told, or they came and told me what he said, that he really thought that I had a chance to play on the varsity as a sophomore, that that was the first time that anybody had ever been uh, openly very positive about me. It's the first time somebody had, had ever remembered saying really good things. Uh, because but, you didn't really have any goals or ambitions no, at that point. No, it was, there was no example, you know, because again, nobody in my family had ever gone to school. And so he, that made me feel really good. And I loved, baseball had always been the most important until my ninth grade year and then basketball became the most important. And uh, so all of a sudden I realized if he makes me feel that good, I can't be the only person he's done that for. And so that's who I wanted to be. And so the summer after my ninth grade year is when I decided I wanted to be a coach. So Coach Baldwin's the one, and he's the one that taught me into going to college because I never even thought about it. And I still talk to him every week, sometimes three or four times a week. And he's uh, just uh, been incredible to me my whole life. And it's, it's something I really appreciated. So you go to college, uh, you're playing on the JV team, and then you start staying after practice to watch Coach Smith and the, the varsity team's mm -hmm. practices. Why? So my sophomore year, I went in one day and had a little legal pad and went in set up in the uh, upper section of Carmichael. Coach Guthrie saw me and went and said something to Coach Smith. And Coach Smith sent a manager up and uh, 
the manager told the security guard, Coach Smith said he's okay and let Roy come in anytime he wants to come. And then one day the varsity manager comes to you and says, Coach Smith wants to talk to you. There were two different times. One uh, that he wanted to know if I would keep a points per possession chart and the other one to know if I could come on uh, Saturday morning uh, to referee a scrimmage. And he ends up inviting you to work at the UNC basketball camp. And fast forward then to summer of 78, he asks to talk to you again. Uh, tell about the offer. Yeah, five years, I coached high school and five years worked the camp and uh, they wanted a, uh, quote, part-time assistant. It was full-time job, part-time pay. And uh, so they offered me that. And I went home and told Wanda. And so she said, okay, so I'm going to make 14000 at uh, Tuscola and you're going to make about 16000 with your coaching deal at Owen. So that's 30000 And Coach Smith offered you 2700 for the year. And I said, yep, that's about it. And she said the famous statement. She said, okay, when do we leave? Why did you think that was a good move for you at the time? Number one, I felt like I was cheating the uh, students at Owen High School because my whole day in basketball season, I was thinking in my mind about planning practice for that night or the game that night. And I didn't think I was doing as good a job as I should be doing in the classroom for them. And so that made me wonder if I should try to get into college coaching. How did you survive financially? <laughs> Very intelligently. <laughs> uh, so I was driving copies of Coach Smith and Coach Crum, our football coach at that time, of their TV show. It was a big old case of a film. And I would drop a tape. I would drop one in Greensboro and one in Asheville and turn around and come back. And it was 504 miles every Sunday. But I made $113. And Wanda was teaching. And then the next year, uh, she only taught a couple of months because she was pregnant with Kimberly. And that's when I started selling calendars. And uh, You became the world's best calendar was, salesman. That's the best calendar salesman you'd ever seen. First year, I sold uh, 10,500 calendars, made $2,400, and drove 9,000 miles in nine weeks. <laughs> uh, the last year I did it, eight years later, I sold 50,000 calendars. Instead of making $2,400, I made over 30,000. I did it in five weeks and in 5,000 miles. I remember this. At that time, it was really, it was yeah. really important. So, yeah. but I also, my wife says, I have more useless information in my brain than anybody. <laughs> How much did you work in college, and what were the different jobs? Uh, it was lucky. Uh, I played on the freshman team, and we were really good. I wasn't good enough to keep playing, so I was fortunate enough to make that team. And I had some financial aid programs, uh, financial aid money. And, but it was starting to run out. So we win the big four freshman tournament. And I came back and I knew I was about to run out of money. And uh, so I see the sign that says umpires needed and intramurals. And so I went to the meeting that Monday night and I started uh, umpiring softball games. And then the next year I started working in intramural office and I officiated uh, basketball, umpired softball, refereed football, I did everything that needed any kind of scorekeeper or referee. And so basically- And you were quickly viewed as like the best referee on campus. Yeah, I think by the end of it, because I was doing all the championship games, I worked 24 hours a week the rest of my uh, college career. He obviously was tight financially to say the least. Um, how do you think those experiences impacted him later in life? I think it made him more determined that his family was not going to feel that same strain. Um, 
and that's just proven by like his selling of the calendars, which I'm sure he talked to you about. Um, so I would say that that just made him that much more determined that like we didn't necessarily have to mm. ever feel like that or feel like you know we didn't couldn't get what we really really wanted or anything before you found success how did you find smart ways to save money i knew what i needed and there were some things i wanted but that never made a difference to me when i was a kid there were some things i wanted couldn't afford uh we made do with what we uh needed and not concerned about what we wanted. Well, once he did have money, he had more money than he ever thought existed in the entire world. And so, I don't know, did he tell you the story about his first nego contract negotiation at Kansas? No. Oh, this is fantastic, what a dummy. So he's had some success. The chancellor and athletic director are worried about how this is gonna go down. And they say, coach, we really need to talk to you about your contract and extending it and that kind of thing. And he says, well, my, my parking space there's a there's a spot in the deck that's really close to the entrance to the to the door coming into the office and I'd really like that parking space. And they were like, Coach, we can we can put your name on the parking space, that's no problem. And he goes, All right, we're good. And that was that was the extent of, of the entire negotiation is he wanted a new parking space. And so it makes my mom mad because he's probably never made market, so to speak. I mean the Carolina contracts that he's had have been fantastic. I'm not trying to say that to be clear, but it's just never been important to him, I guess is the point. Best and worst financial decision you ever made? Worst was I got involved in a golf course project at uh, Kansas that didn't, didn't work out. To the point where it was a, a painful amount? It was to me, okay. yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, several thousand dollars and you get two dozen golf balls at the end and sell it for $5. And the best was I told Wanda, you handle the finances. I'll make sure there's money there, but you handle it. I've written five checks in 48 years of marriage. Uh, when I need some money, I ask her, can I have some money? Uh, I don't do any of the bank statements. I don't go to the bank. I don't do any of those things. I've never used an ATM. Don't have any idea what I would do there. Uh, so the best decision is putting her in charge of the finances. The uh, academic impropriety stuff at UNC, um, how did it affect you? Mentally, more than anything, uh, the way I felt like people were looking at me and the way they were looking at my basketball program and the way I thought they were looking at my school. And I didn't think it was fair because I didn't do anything wrong. How did you think they were looking at you? That it was negative because negative news gets the headlines and the Raleigh News Observer put it in headlines every day. I mean, you, you thought the perception was what? I thought the perception was that we were cheating, that we were giving our players extra help, that we were giving our players grades, and that was not true, and that I was involved. When the first notice of allegations came out, my name was in there one time, and it said we interviewed Coach Roy Williams. The second notice of allegation, that wasn't even in there, and yet they interviewed me, and they talked to me, and they found nothing, and I felt like we had really done some good things to make sure we were not doing anything wrong. And so that was, that was a difficult time. We had recruited 24 McDonald's All-Americans in the first 10 years. In the next three years, we recruited one. And it was hard when you walk up to do a speaking engagement to help somebody and there's a TV camera there and a guy sticks a microphone in underneath your face and says, do you think you're going to keep your job? Do you think you're going to be fired? And so it was not the most pleasant time.
it wasn't easy because um, you just know that he felt bad and felt, you know, that it was something that in some ways was not a part of him, but also he was getting a lot of the blame for it. The thing that probably hurt him the most is it was an attack on his personal integrity. It was an embarrassment for the school as a whole. And yet, because he was the most visible, uh, uh, unwilling participant <laughs> in that, he was held up as everything that went wrong. Your son said it was the lowest sustained period of your career. Yeah, it was two or three years. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't happening like that. Right. And uh, every time he turned around and people would yell things, I'd go to a golf tournament and people were saying, hang in there, coach, hang in there, coach. And one guy yelled, a cheater. And I'm face to face with him in about three seconds. I just told him he had no idea what he was talking about and don't open his mouth unless he knows what the crap he's talking about. And then the light bulb flicked on and said, be a little smarter than that. So I turned around and walked off. I understand there's some close to you who feel like there are others that could have done more to defend you mm -hmm. when all this was going on. Um, what do you think? Oh, at the time, I wish there was, I had wanted some things to be said to say Roy Williams did nothing wrong. Roy Williams is doing this the right way. By the university? Or anybody, you know, anybody that could get some attention. And, but that was, it, it made me a little mad, but it wasn't a big deal. It really wasn't. It wasn't just a football thing or a basketball thing. It cheapened all of our degrees. It was a, it was a black smudge on the university as a whole. Um, and, and yet through that process, I think he had kind of made it his mind up that he was not going to bail in the middle of that because that would have been the easy decision. And I, th I think a lot of it is he, he, he believed that he would have been letting down Coach Smith if he had, you know, bailed on it at that point. Looking back on that now, do you feel like there was anything you should have known that you didn't? No. When we got here, we told them we were going to do things the right way, and we had guys that had sort of gone over to this major that they thought was the easiest, and I didn't think that was right. And I said, hey, we're not going to tell you. Tell me what you want to do. Mm -hmm. You want to be a dentist? You want to be a businessman? You want to do this? You know, do your job in the classroom. And if I'm the basketball coach, you're going to do it or you're not going to play. And that was just a very simple thing to me. So it wasn't any campaign or anything that I did. To, I just told them this is the way it's going to be. Former players were great about it as well. And coming out like what is being reported, like that's not the Coach Williams that we had to put up with because that dude was on our tails. You even kind of just felt for the players too, like these guys that had worked so hard that um, had legitimate classes and then all of a sudden they're People are talking and saying, oh, your degree isn't legitimate. And uh, I couldn't control what had gone on before. And as I looked into it, and the university looked into it, what had gone in before was not what was portrayed in the newspapers at all. And so I was comfortable with what had gone on before, and I was darn sure comfortable with what, everything I'd done. Bad things really did happen, no matter how much certain Carolina fans may say, you know, told you nothing happened. No, things happened, bad things happened. And part of those bad things happened uh, on his watch. Now they were, they were turned. Um, guardrails were put up and, and, and the, the culture and the expectation was changed. Um, 
but you just see like the the thread of his being being attacked. What about lesson or takeaway from that experience? That in times when you have tough times, you do need that core group that you can pull together. And that's what I tried to do with my team. And that was uh, the reason we had the success we had during those times. I mean, we lost a national championship game on the last second shot and, and won a national championship game during those time periods. But it was because we tried to be even stronger together. Stress. Yeah. How constant a presence is it in your life? Right now, not very much. <laughs> How about up until retirement? Yeah, every day. I mean, uh, and I've always put more on myself than anybody ever has. I tell a player, when you're in that gym working, maybe somebody else is not. But if you're not in there, maybe somebody else is. And that could be the guy that you're competing with for the last spot on the team or for the number one draft choice in the NBA. And so that's the way I've tried to run my life. I'm trying every day to make sure that nobody's going to outwork me. How would the stress affect you? Just not sleep, you know, but I've always thought I could get by on less sleep than anybody in the world. He'll just either be thinking of what he did wrong previously or what he can do to make it better in the future. And, all, and so it's just his mind like never turns off enough for him to just truly relax. How little sleep would you get? A lot of times, uh, three hours, something like that, three or four. If I got five hours a night or something, I didn't know how to act, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, there would be sometimes after a loss, I may not, a difficult loss, that maybe I wouldn't sleep at all. To me, it was just one more reason why I have no desire and had no desire to ever be a basketball coach. It's just, uh, that is not worth it. You run into a guy in the, in the airport and we're with Pop or somebody says, guy, you know, I lost 10 bucks on you guys last year, but you know, go get it for me this year. Like the guy's not trying to be a jerk, but he has no idea. The normal person doesn't understand what it's like being in that kind of position where you're, because he always felt like it, it's not just the players that are, that I'm responsible for, but it's the players' families. It's the people within the athletic department. It's my assistant coach's kids. Like he talks about the assistant coach's kids as being his grandkids. And he has a count, like before he retired, he had a count. Like I'm, now I've got eight grandkids that I'm supporting. It's great for running a program and for a guy that cares, but that's not healthy, like mentally. Your son said, as it pertains to coaching, um, the highs are never as high as the lows are low. He mentioned you would say that. Why would you want a job that makes you feel that way? For me, it was all goes back to Buddy Baldwin. I wanted to be important and to make somebody feel like my high school coach made me feel. That was it. And then secondly, the competitive side, uh, it is the lows are much, much lower than highs are high. I felt like it was a, it was a desperate level that it was some way of, yes, grading, are you successful or not? Yes, but I uh, not only hated losing, it was, uh, it was hard for me to handle. When he loses a game in one of his suits, that suit ends up on my rack. Does it really? Absolutely, I've got a great collection back there of loser suits for him, but they were great for me. You wrote in your book, if you haven't walked in my shoes, you don't know the pain, you don't know the regret, you don't know the anguish, it eats at your soul. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that was part of the reason for retiring, because 
it just got so hard. And the losses or the mistakes would just hang with me so much longer. I mean, I have a good friend who's an NBA general manager who made some bad free agent deals that said, you know, I made this deal for $50 million and the guy wasn't any good. He said, those are mistakes. He said, you didn't foul a guy and that's the mistake that's gonna make you change your life. But the losing and the mistakes got to be uh, so dominating in my life that it was hard to handle. What was life like as kids growing up? I mean, I always say that I can't really answer that question because to me, like everything that we did as kids was normal. So it was normal to go to all these crazy basketball games. Other kids always thought it was so unique, but like I had a buddy whose dad worked for the radio station and would chase tornadoes. Like, that's the dad I wanted. I mean, that sounds way cooler than what my old man did. He just had, like I said, kind of a cool job, and we got to have a bunch of extra older brothers every year that would come around, be around a lot, and our Thanksgiving dinner had 50 people at it because Mom always cooked Thanksgiving for the entire team. He always had a intensity that you saw on the court that people would come up and say, God, is that what your dad looks like when he yells at you? <laughs> and, and it was never, it, it, it really wasn't ever like that. But he, he probably wasn't around as much as maybe some other dads. But again, I don't know that we recognize that until he got in the way of our plans um, when he was in town because he was very focused on making sure that we had dinner together as a family every single night he was there. I loved playing basketball at the time. And so I knew every Friday night Everybody was gonna be playing at the Holcomb basketball courts from six to 10 o'clock at night. The lights came on at nine. And when he was in town, that meant I wasn't gonna get there until the lights came on. So I'd already missed the first few hours of, of playing. And so yeah, then when I'm sitting around eating, you know, macaroni and cheese and, and whatnot, that it didn't hold the candle. I'd, I would have rather been out playing. We didn't eat macaroni and cheese if he was yeah, home. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Pop doesn't do He doesn't pasta. do pasta. No? Mm-mm. Oh, do pasta, and doesn't, doesn't do pizza, pizza, right? Pizza, yeah. what, what's the deal with him and pizza? <laughs> I have no earthly idea, and the only times he's ever eaten pizza, he will tell you, is when he went into a prospect's home. If mom is handing him a plate of pizza, he's gonna eat that plate of pizza. <laughs> On an official visit, he is doing nothing to upset a mom, and so I promise you, every slice of pizza he's ever had has been served to him by a former prospect's mom. How punctual is he? Very. He is still one of the most scared moments I've ever had in my life because uh, I knew we were going to get in trouble for this. We were at a uh, uh, NCAA regional in Dayton. I'm in the room with the athletic director's son, my best friend, Brad Frederick, now one of his assistant coaches. We walk out because we're going to practice, we're on the team bus, and we get up to the door and I knock on the door because the door's just closed and I look up and Pop just waves and they pull out. And I'm looking up into the bus and I'm seeing the players, and I know them at this point, and they are clowning me because my own dad just left me. I was left once in France. You were? <laughs> my mom and I both were. What happened? Yeah, we were um, trying to eat dinner before a game. Um, we were gonna be on the team bus to go to the game, and it just took a long time to get our food, and we walked out of the hotel doors just in time to see the bus start pulling away, and it was like, well, Guess we're getting a taxi. <laughs> uh, how about favorite moment from his career? 2005 national championship. championship. Just yeah. because it was, it kind of cemented that he could win the big one. It meant so much to him, and I, and I think we all kind of felt we were along for the ride. And there's a, a picture that I still have in my house hanging up that's when he 
came off the court and came up into the stands to hug all of us. And I think we're all just, luckily my back is to the camera, so you can't see me bawling. I definitely wasn't crying. Michael Jordan, uh, your close friend, you were one of the first college coaches to really get excited uh, about Michael. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think you saw that others missed? Well, everybody missed, and we would have too, but I just saw him on a Sunday afternoon, and I thought, oh my gosh, this may be the best six foot four inch high school player I've ever seen. But none of us, Dean Smith, Bill Guthrie, Jetty Fogler, Roy Williams, knew that he was going to be Michael Jordan. Right. But he was just uh, gifted, but he had a desire that was different from everybody else. He told me he wanted to be the best player ever at North Carolina, and I said, well, you've got to work harder than you did in high school. And he said, I worked as hard as everybody else. I said, excuse me. I thought you told me you wanted to be the best. You have no chance, no chance. And two days later, he came back and said, I want to talk to you and said, I'm going to show you nobody will ever outwork me. And nobody ever has to this day. What do you think made him unique? That desire. There's guys on a street corner that can run and jump. There's guys playing basketball that can shoot. There's guys doing so many things, and they are great players, but nobody's great as Michael Jordan was. That expression, the GOAT, greatest of all time, he's the GOAT, and I've watched a lot of basketball <laughs> 71 years. Nobody's done what Michael Jordan, and his desire, his passion, his focus, his work ethic, his competitiveness, Oh my gosh, it's off the charts. Tell about this rivalry on the golf course that you guys have. Oh, he's, I used to be able to beat him. He beats me to death right now. But oh, we, does he? Oh yeah, he's, he's. You have more time to work on your game well, now, I, too. We haven't played since I retired. Ah, now, okay. Come on, I'll, I'll, I'll have a chance to hopefully next spring, uh, after I have my second knee replaced, I'm gonna try to uh, work on my game and see if I can get. Uh, when I left high school coach, my handicap was a three. And for 45 years, I've been able to keep it in single digits in the summer. But this summer, at 71, it took me until August to get it to single digits. So I've got to go back to work. What's this I hear about a motorcycle he gave you? Yeah, he. Uh, we were at an auction, the charity auction, Jimmy V Challenge. And uh, he's always been great. And Wanda is a great, great cook. And she used to fix him from fried, fried shrimp. And he came in and sat down at our table because he said he hadn't seen me in almost a year. And they bring this Harley and vroom, vroom. And Wanda said, you can buy me that motorcycle to me. And Michael said, do you ride a bike? And I said, she's never ridden a bike in her life. And uh, she said, well, I could learn. And Michael said, I'm going to buy you that bike. And my wife almost, no. And it was, it was unbelievable. But he sat there in an auction. Charles Barkley's across the room, and he's over there bidding. And Michael gave him the sign to stop, and he was buying it for Wanda. And so he bought her a motorcycle. We still have it. Tell the story about his dad installing a, a wood, wood stove, stove at your house. I was still the part-time assistant. Wasn't making very much money, but we had bought a house January 24th of Michael's senior year in high school. Uh, I had talked to Mr. Jordan and told him I was going to buy a wood stove. So he called one night and said he was coming up and he had me a stove. And I said, great, you know? And so we came in, it was heavy. We get it out of the truck and put it in and start it and it works. And I said, Wanda, get the checkbook. And he said, what for? I said, I won't write you a check. He said, if you write me a check, I'm taking it out and putting it in my truck. He says, this is, I made this for you. I'm, I built this. I said, you built it. 
And he said, yeah, I built this for you. And uh, I was just blown away. And then uh, we moved to another house and uh, it had bigger. Uh, so Mr. Jordan came over and measured it again and built me a second one. So Michael's dad was great. One of the most well-known, you know, efficient, hardworking guy, loyal to the core, just, and his mom was great too. Dolores was special, but James Jordan was a hero of mine. I want to wrap up talking uh, uh, about Wanda. In what ways does she provide the perfect balance for you? She's everything to our family. She's the glue. She, I wanted her to be the, uh, the mother of my children, and she's the perfect mom, the perfect grandmom, and I walk around and have fun. Everything that uh, I'm bad at, she's good at, and that's about everything. Just now in social media and computer work, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm the only guy you've ever known that does not have an email. Oh, come on. I don't know, no. When email first came out, I had a computer at Kansas and I'd press a button, it said, you've got mail. And it'd be sort of cute. It's fifth day I went in and pushed the button and had 208 messages. And I cut it off, closed the computer and never opened it up again. I came here <laughs> and on. they said, where do you want your computer? I said, I don't want one. And they said, well, you gotta have a computer. I said, no, I don't. They put a computer behind my desk. I never opened it in 18 years. There were over 18,000 emails in there they had to erase because I never opened it. I wasn't going to do it. So I'm not, my life's not dominated by the computer. Uh, okay, in fairness, so yeah. you had, I'm sure you had to learn how to text because in the recruiting can, process, you're Oh yeah, I can call somebody, they can call stuff. me, they text me, I can text them back. I've even gotten the ESPN app so I can check the scores and see how the Yankees are doing or how our guys are doing in the NBA. So you have a smartphone. I don't know what this is. But it's, yeah, that's what I have. Definitely. I got my pictures, my grandchildren on the back, <laughs> so it's good. But uh, uh, no, I, I, I don't do those things. To what extent do you think she's always gotten the appreciation she deserves? Oh, for me, I don't deal with people when we're building a house, moving, or anything like that. I tell them, you need to have a great relationship and be able to take instruction from a woman because I will never speak to you, but I'll work hard enough that there'll be enough money there to pay you at the end. I understand she's not one to pump you up and tell oh, you how no. great you are. No, no, no. She keeps me grounded. The, the important thing to her is not winning the game. The important thing is when we're going to go see the kids. The important thing is seeing the grandkids. And the uh, important thing is uh, helping, uh, uh, helping people. Dad is definitely the more outgoing one. Mom is definitely more of the introvert and kind of the calmer of the two until she reaches her point and then she'll then she'll be the one that if she thinks that somebody has done him wrong or one of us wrong or something like that then she's a whole other person. I guess I've always just figured they were nice compliments for one another um, and I don't know that Pop ever chased the cameras but the cameras were always chasing him and that was just something my mom never had interest in. She didn't want to be interviewed at games. She didn't want to be seen at games. What's this I hear about a jockstrap proposal? <laughs> it's gotten overplayed in my mind. I'm sure she thinks it's played exactly the right level. So we're going to a movie, and at that time, I always was ready for a game. So I had my shoes and socks, gym shorts, and my jock, yes, in the back seat, because if I went by a playground and guys were playing, I'd stop and play sometime. So I said, I've got something for you in the back seat under my shorts. And I didn't really think about the fact that the jock was there too. I tell every player, 
every friend, young person, do 180 degrees away from the way I asked Wanda to marry me because she opened it up and it's a ring and instead of stopping the car and getting down on one knee or making it romantic or something, I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> that was the way I proposed. So. Yeah, I shouldn't do it like that, but we've survived 48 years. I think this whole retirement thing is going to be hilarious because my mom would like nothing more than to get in a van and drive across the country and see things and then fly to Europe and do it across Asia. And I don't know that he cares to ever leave the state of North Carolina if he doesn't have to. I mean, he's he is more than happy to sit around and play golf all day long. I think she'll win a little bit. I'm not sure that she'll get him in an RV going across the country, but um, I think that she may be able to drag him to a few places they haven't been before, and I'm not sure that she'll get them overseas, but <laughs> we'll <No> see. <laughs> and she means what to you? Everything. She's the perfect mom, the perfect grandmom. She's been able to do things in areas where I'm very weak. Uh, she was just phenomenal raising our children. She's singing little songs, little lullabies, and itsy bitsy spider and I never heard those things in my entire life. I had never seen those kind of things and uh, uh, and she's very bright and uh, she's everything. That's just part of our time with retired UNC basketball coach Roy Williams. We toured the Carolina Basketball Museum filled with relics from the program's rich history. One of the most popular items involves Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski and former Tar Heel Michael Jordan. Hop onto our YouTube page to check that out, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Williams and I also went for a walk and drive around campus, had lunch at a famous Chapel Hill establishment, and attended a UNC football game. Also, if you enjoyed the podcast, or even if you didn't, give us a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks again for listening.